Uh, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 1 again this morning. We're going to be in verses 8 through 22. And I'm just going to begin by reading those to you. So verse 8 says this, A new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. He said to his people, Look, the Israelites are numerous and more powerful than we are. Come, let's deal shrewdly with them. Otherwise, they will multiply further. And when war breaks out, they will join our enemies, uh, fight against us, and leave the country. So the Egyptians assigned taskmasters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. They built Pithom and Ramses as supply cities for Pharaoh. But the more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied and spread, so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. They worked the Israelites ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with difficult labor in brick and mortar and all kinds of field work. They ruthlessly imposed all kinds of work on them. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, the first, whose name was Shippa, uh, Shipra, and the second, whose name was Pua. When you help these Hebrew women give birth, observe them as they deliver. If the child is a son, kill him. But if it's a daughter, she may live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do as the king told him. They let the boys live. So the king summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this and let the boys live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, The Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife gets to them. So God was good to the midwives, and the, and the people multiplied and became very numerous. Since the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Pharaoh then commanded all of his people, You must throw every son born to the Hebrews in, uh, into the Nile, but let every daughter live. So, Remember, we're talking, uh, we've been talking about this idea. We've been kind of in the prequels the last two weeks. We've been in, in, in Genesis, but we talked about this idea that God, uh, God carries out his promises, uh, or God does what he wants, and what he wants is always consistent with his promises uh, and with his character. And we talked about how, how he had given promises, and we talked two weeks ago about the ultimate promise in history and how that was preserved through the, through the line of, of Joseph. We talked last week about God fulfilling, uh, God's fulfillment, God's carrying out his promises given to Abraham that he would have as many descendants as the stars. We talked about how uh, when, last week, uh, when, when last week's passage, there were 70, uh, there were 70 uh, Hebrew uh, 70 Hebrews, 70 descendants of Abraham, 70 descendants of, uh, of, of jo Joseph. We talked about that. And then this morning, uh, we're going to get into a transition. It's kind of a transitional story. So that gives the background. But here's where we sort of jump into the main story. So Joseph dies. Joseph family dies. Joseph had been, been effective and influential and helpful in Egypt, and so there was, there was protection, there was all of that, but the king, who was familiar with him, died. And when that happened, a new king came to power. When he came to power, he did not, uh, he did not know uh, uh, of Joseph, he didn't know Joseph's people, he looked at a people who were different than him, and he became afraid of them. And so we're going to talk about what this new king does, and it's a, it's a very interesting Thing, thing that happens, but this new king is going to oppose, uh, oppose the children of Israel at, at every turn, and he's going to attempt to oppress them, and ultimately, he's going to attempt to destroy them, and he's going to do it in a very specific way, and we're going to, when looking at it, we're going to see how the way in which he uh, comes against the children of Israel has repeated itself throughout all of history, continues to repeat, repeat itself, and then we're going to apply that, uh, we're going to apply all of that, what happens in the story uh, to our lives 
uh, into what God would have from us. And so the new king comes to power. He doesn't know Joseph. But he looks around and he says, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we are. So what happens is, is that the king who has power begins to be afraid that his power might be usurped or his power might be taken from him by another group that, that's different than him. This is common in history. This is common. Uh, it, it happens actually continually in the life of the, of the children of Israel. It happens continually in the life of Jewish people. But he looks around and he goes, they're powerful. In fact, they're so powerful we need to watch out because they might become more powerful than we are. And his fear is if they become more powerful than them, then the, than, than the Israelites, the children of Joseph, the descendants of, of Abraham, might take over their land. He might usurp them. He says, here's what we need to do. They're way too numerous in power. Let's deal shrewdly with them. Otherwise, they will, further, they will multiply further. And when war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So... In dealing with, with dissident groups in history, it's not even dissident groups, but historically what happens is when, when one group who has power identifies a group that, that doesn't have power, uh, there, there have been conflicts all, all throughout history. And that's what's happening here. And the way that he's going to deal with this conflict is the way in which, which conflict has been regularly, uh, in, in way in which it often plays out. And so his first step, when he, he recognizes a group that is different than him, he recognizes that the group is growing, but at that time it's a, it's a minority group, and he's afraid that this, this minority group will usurp their culture, usurp their power, take over. What's the first thing that he is going to do? His first response is he is going to dehumanize them. And this is, this is, all, is, is the first step in history. Uh, we'll talk about it in a minute. But his first step is he needs to dehumanize them. He needs to make the people, the other people in Egypt who, who know these Israelites, he needs to kind of, kind of uh, force a separation or a wedge into that relationship. Because you have to assume that, that the Israelites haven't been there, the Israelites multiplying, the Israelites living I I in the culture, they have a relationship with, the, with Egyptians. And some of those relationships might have been warm, and some of those relationships might have been good, and it might have been going well. And so the king goes, what are we going to do? The first thing he needs to do is he needs to dehumanize or, or he, needs to, uh, he, he needs to cause a wedge between the, the people and, and, and the descendants of Abraham. He needs to dehumanize them in a way so that when he has to come against them, when he has to do something greater, when he has to uh, oppress them, that, that, that the, the Egyptians do not automatically uh, uh, fight back. He, he uses this dehumanization to get the people on his side. That's why he says, look, the Israelites are more numerous and powerful than we are. Come, let's deal shrewdly with them. Otherwise, they will multiply further, and when war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. What he wants to do is he wants to sort of draw a wedge. He wants to take away from their humanity, look at the Israelites, your friend and your neighbor. He doesn't say that. He says, look at them, they're multiplying, they're multiplying too fast, and they're not, they're not your neighbor, and they're not your friend, they're just people who are going to get together, form an army, overthrow our country, and make everything terrible for us. And so the first thing he does is he needs to start to talk, and he needs to start to get the idea that, that these people are a huge 
problem. And that's always <laughs> when, when these sorts of situations like it's happening in our passage this morning, when one group wants, wants, to, wants to carry out uh, evil against another group, dehumanization needs to be the, the first step. This is why after World War I, after World War I, many, many, many Jewish people had fought in, in, with the German army. They had served in the German army. They'd come home uh, with, with the German army. But the Germans, because they, they felt the, the sting and felt as though they had lost, uh, lost the war, they needed a, a scapegoat. And so one of the scapegoats they, they started to spread around was that Germany had been stabbed in the back by those on the home front. And so the idea they began to spread was that the Jewish people, the, the, the German Jews, did not go to war. That the, that the, the German Jews uh, were, were, um, were uh, at home objecting to the war. They were, they were deserting. They weren't going. They were finding any way they could, to not, could not, to not serve in the military. And so they started to spread the idea, oh, the Jews here in Germany, they didn't serve. They would not help us fight the war. And then they started to spread the idea, not only did they not help help Germany, did, did they not go to war, but the, the Jewish people here at home, they stabbed Germany in the back. They opposed us while we were away at war. And because they felt the sting of world, the loss in World War I so deeply, it set the stage for the demonizing of, of, of Jewish people. It, it's one of the early things that happened. They've written books about that phenomenon. My interest was, how do you get to, in our time, this place where we already understand that, that, that by World War II, the kinds of things that are, that are going on, and before that, when Hitler rises up, the kinds of things he's going to do to Jewish people are, are inconceivable. We can't even process in our head that anybody would even do anything so evil. How do you get there? Well, the way you get there is you start with little lies and little, little insinuations of, of, of separation. You have to inject that in because most people... We hope that, that the, the image of God, though marred in us, is still strong enough that we can look at someone else made in the image of God and know that it is wrong to mistreat that person. It's wrong to do evil to that person. And so the first step by the king here in, in our passage is to dehumanize. It's to tell lies and to begin to sow dissension because they need to have a way to come against them in which the people will not rise up and say, wait, that's... That's wrong. And so that's what happened here. It's what happened with the, with the Jewish folk uh, when the, 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 the first strains of this was that the Jewish folk caused Germany to lose the war, and it, and it sets the table. It's happened throughout history uh, all, all the time. American history is, is replete with this. I think I've traced for you be, before how this happens, but you need to remember that in, in American history, at the same time Thomas Jefferson is writing, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. He holds slaves. He owns as property thousands of, of men and, and women. Uh, they, were, they were viewed so much as, as, as property. They used the term property in, the, in their legal filings. If you look up their defense of how do you get to, to um, get from, from being a, a normal human who understands 
understands basic right and wrong to owning another human. It's, they started to use terms like property. They started to use uh, that person is property. They started to use arguments like, like science. Oh, that person is, is not naturally as wise as us, not naturally as smart. So even if you understand in American history, uh, Abraham Lincoln, Emancipation Proclamation, a good thing, good, right, we're happy that happened. But Abraham Lincoln, though he does believe that slaves should not be mistreated, even Abraham Lincoln does not believe that a slave is, 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 is mentally equal. And so these kinds of ideas needed to be sown early. In American history, uh, they bring over slaves, and because they're enslaving them, they, they, they need to, to protect people from saying, wait, that's another human. So what do they do? They dehumanized. They had a whole process, actually, for dehumanization. They would regularly bring slaves in, in who, no matter who they're, man, woman, child, strip them naked, have whole groups of people look at them and judge them based upon physical characteristics. It is sowed in this, this idea that we still support, by the way, regularly today, is sowed in this idea that there's a genetic superiority to the physical ability of the person of color or the African the African coming from taking taken from their home nation there is a physical superiority to them right and so if we start to view them in terms of physical superiority we we exalted that if there's a genetic explanation for physical superiority then there can be a genetic explanation for mental inferiority and it allowed them to begin to dehumanize right it's just a, this is how we sow. So uh, another example currently in in uh, going on when when political uh, when political leaders uh, in in political arguments use descriptors of people from other nations and other places that is not language that I can use from from the pulpit. It's an act of dehumanization. We dehumanize. That which we oppose. This is why in the immigration debate, the the the, the people who who oppose uh, who who um, people who want walls on our southern border, for instance, talk of people from Latin American countries as as rapists, thugs, and thieves, and use these terms over and over and over again. That's why one of our political leaders said, "Well, I'm sure there are some good people from there. You have to, you have to dehumanize." Because dehumanization is the first step. If you allow the people to be humanized, your next step doesn't work. His next step then is this. A king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. He said to his people, look, the Israelites are more numerous and powerful than we are, and they're plotting against us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. Otherwise, they will multiply further. And when war breaks out, they're going to join our enemies. He has to make them an enemy, not a human that's step one. You have to have to so that. Then step two is, so then the Egyptians assigned taskmasters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. Uh, they built cities, verse 12, but the more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied. So they, they oppressed them. Uh, later on in verse 14, it says they ruthlessly imposed work on them. They, the step one is after you dehumanize a people, you, you begin to disenfranchise that, that same people. So... Here, he's going, well, because you're, you're behaving like that, because we believe you're an enemy of the state, so to speak, we believe you're out to get Egypt, here's what we're going to do. You're going to do slave labor, you're going to do this, you're going to serve in this way. They're going to, so he started by dehumanization. His dehumanization allows him to go to the second step in his plan, which is disenfranchisement. He, he is going to, in, in, in this case, impose slave labor, not give them equity, not give them the things that they they have, he's beginning to treat them as, as slaves. Same thing happens 
in, 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 after World War I. You have the Jewish people. They begin to do what's called scapegoating. They put the, they put the blame on, on the Jewish folk. The Jewish people are the reason that we lost to Germany. There, it breeds suspicion of Jewish folk. People are so suspicious, they tell enough lies about them that they begin to say, we need to watch them closer. We need to identify them. We need to be clear who they are. This is where we get all the stories of the oppression of, of Jewish people. They're rounded up and put into, into, uh, into ghettos. Uh, they, they're, they're put into a place where we can keep an eye on them. They put stars on them so they can be identified, right? They do all of these sorts of things and they start to disconnect and to outright oppress the Jewish people. They're disenfranchising them, so to speak. They're making them not a part of society and they begin to, to oppress them. Uh, that happened with the Jewish people. Again, if we want to talk about, uh, about the, the, the American slave, the slave brought to America, taken from, from, from their land in West Africa, brought here, treated not as human, treated as property, they begin to be then enslaved in America even after slavery. They spend years and years and years and year, years uh, uh, continuing to fight that, that war for equality both in the South and, and in other places. We get from that, we get what is Jim Crow laws, the institution uh, of what it was called separate but, but equal. Separate but equal was certainly separate. It was in no cases that, that I can find equal. The... Uh, if you look just at, at education and the way uh, things happened there, you could find pictures in, in, uh, in Jim Crow South of, of white classrooms uh, functioning like a, like a well-funded, well-oiled machine. You can at the same time f uh, find pictures of what is going on in, in the black uh, communities where you will find, find close to 100 students of all different age groups packed in with one teacher with no supplies, no paper, no anything trying to teach. It's disenfranchisement. Educational disenfranchisement is a, is, is a major one uh, that we've used. And you follow this disenfranchisement all throughout. You have in the rise of this. And so we give less access to education. We give less access to education. At the same time in our country, people like Margaret Sanger come along. Margaret Sanger, founder of Planned Parenthood, shows up on the scene. And what does Margaret Sanger do? She says, these poor and these colored people, she used the racist term, these colored people are, are, are scourges. They're, 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 they're dangerous and they're, they're essentially, she said, they're dumb. Her assumption is based upon a self-fulfillment of what happened when you disenfranchise a group and don't give them equal access to, to education. And then you say, well, if you're equal, why are you not achieving at the same level? They couldn't achieve. They've been disenfranchised by the educational system. But people come along all throughout history and want to make all kinds of, all kinds of claims uh, about, uh, about the, the African who had been brought to, to, to America. And so they come along, and then this idea begins to develop in the psyche is that those people over there, those people over there, they are dumb. Those people over there, they don't want to work. Those people over there are the problem in society. And so in our society, one of the greatest ways we, we've disenfranchised, even over and against the reality that we literally held other people as poverty for 300 years, over and against that, one of the things we've done is since then, we never really gave equity. And so because we denied things like educational equity, we've used that to prove our own, our own uh, idea that the, the person of color was somehow less than us, uh, especially intellectually, good for service, 
good to work in our factories, good to be on our sports teams, good at jumping and other things that are largely rooted in, in, in racist, dehumanizing ideology, but they are not good to be our doctor, not good to be our neighbor, not good to be, uh, be any of, of those sorts of, of things. And so disenfranchise happened all over. If you want to read an interesting study, uh, I'm sorry uh, I, that I was in Chicago and this place is not open, but they, they're opening a, a National Museum of Public Housing. If you're interested in this, when that thing opens up, it'll be very interesting because Chicago is a case study in disenfranchisement of people of color, and it was intentional. So Chicago, controlled by aldermen, had to decide where low-income housing could go. Remember, we've disenfranchised a group of people to the point where they're receiving a lesser education, which is giving them lesser access to, to employment at higher levels, which is giving them lesser income, which is resulting in people of color being disproportionately represented in, 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 the, in the classes that are impoverished. Chicago aldermen, realizing this, vote on where where they can put public housing, where public housing can go. And not only do they intentionally choose the places that are terrible to live, but they, like, they have humor. And so one of the places chosen where they said, we can build, uh, build housing for those, uh, those who make less money, those in need. One of those places was in the middle of the Dan Ryan Freeway. It's a giant freeway that goes through the middle of Chicago, and it's on the approved list. Yes, the poor may live in the middle of that highway. I don't know about you, but if someone says to you, you can go play in, a high, in the middle of the highway, that is an insult. It is an even greater insult when the, government, the government's response to, 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 to people who have less is, eh, I don't know about you, but you can go live in the middle of the highway for all that we care about you. And it's, it's one of the most amazing stories. The, uh, the, the public housing, the, the, the people of Chicago won landmark, landmark lawsuits against the city of Chicago for their historic and amazingly discriminatory policies and attempts to disenfranchise people of color. And so they won that. And yet at the same time, if you know uh, where Moody Bible College is in Chicago, just off from, from Moody Bible College, there was, a, there was a housing complex. That housing complex was called Cabrini Green. Cabrini Green was one of the, actually one of the most dangerous uh dangerous housing projects in America for a lot of years, but it also housed thousands upon thousands of thousands of low-income people. Recently what happened, and this is even after we have fixed the issue with the aldermen, recently what happened is, is if you disenfranchise a people long enough, they don't have power to respond. What happened is that neighborhood started to do what's called gentrification. Gentrification is when people who have more decide that they want what the people who have less already have. And so they came in and the rich folk decided we want the near north side. We want Cabrini Green. And they came in and they brought, bought up all of Cabrini Green and forced out. So if you go to where the most dangerous housing project in America used to be, you will discover some of the most expensive housing in America. I was looking at a magazine while I was in Chicago. It told me that, that you can buy a condo there. I believe it was, it was uh, 2,000 square feet. I, don't quote me on that. Uh, you can buy that condo for only $9 million dollars. 
So you can buy $9 million where Cabrini Green once, once sat. Now, you say, well, if it was the most dangerous in America, I guess it's good. Yeah, except for this reality, for a disenfranchised people, one of the number one things they need because they do not have money is connection to others. And so the first thing they did is when they came in and they're like, we just want this side of Cabrini Green. You need to take your 15-year-old son and move him to that side of Cabrini Green. It was a death warrant because people living on one side of Cabrini Green, whether they were involved in a gang or not, would have been associated naturally with that gang. So if that young man moves to the other side of Cabrini Green, he is as good as dead. So they can't do that. So what does that family do? That family says, well, we can't do that. We're going to move out of Cabrini Green. We'll move to Humboldt Park. But if you're in poverty and you have to move any sort of serious distance, what do you lose? You lose the support networks and the safety nets that we assume in, 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 in sort of our middle class existence. Most of us have safety nets. People in extreme poverty, no safety nets. They're losing the safety nets. They're losing uh, the neighbor who watched their, their child. They're losing the friend who would occasionally give them food if they needed it. They're losing uh, uh, all of these sorts of things, and they have to move to a completely different different neighborhood. This happened to the point now Cabrini Green is, uh, is completely gone. Nine million dollar condos are on it. It's an interesting effect. I'm, uh, my kids have always gone to a camp called Camp Beach Point. Their number one ministry was, through uh, Child Evangelism Fellowship was to kids in Cabrini Green. And it has almost destroyed or made the ministry impossible because they can't track down the kids that they've been ministering to for so long. They're spread all over the city. My point is simply that with you dehumanize, right, they're poor. What do they expect? So, for instance, we had a senator in, in Michigan who was talking about foster kids, and he was trying to save money, and he said, well, we need to spend less money on this. The foster kids are just going to have to go to, like, Goodwill or something to get their clothes because they're foster kids. They can't expect much more. Now, that is perhaps a financially sound statement, but it's extremely dehumanizing. And when we dehumanize, it makes us much easier to say foolish things. And so they've been dehumanized. Dehumanization leads into disenfranchising, which means it's okay for us to not only, only, uh, uh, um, not only look crossways at those, at those Israelites here in Egypt, but we should do something to them. We need to oppress them. This disenfranchisement, dehumanization gave way to disenfranchisement. That disenfranchisement for the children of Israel resulted in, in slavery and backbreaking labor again and again and again. But the problem is what starts with dehumanization and de- disenfranchisement usually ends up someplace much nastier, which is what happens in the text. So he's done that. He's gone, I've convinced the people I've convinced the, 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 uh, the, the voting public, he's a king, but uh, he, he's convinced his, his people, his realm, so to speak, that, that it's okay to oppress the Egyptians because they're going to attack us. So he dehumanizes them, he oppresses them, uses disenfranchisement. What is he going to do next? Well, having done that, he goes to the next step. Uh, he, he says this, the king of Egypt, <laughs> verse 15, he realizes that, that, that when he, when he de- dehumanized and disenfranchised, there was a problem. It caused the people to multiply. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Okay, but it caused the people to multiply. So this isn't working. I thought this would work. I thought we could do this. Uh, they oppose all kinds of work ruthlessly on him. Doesn't work. So verse 15, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, the first whose name was Shiprah, and the second whose name was Puah, uh, when you help the Hebrew women give birth, observe them and they deliver it, the child is son, kill him, right? So you dehumanize, you disenfranchise, which allows you to destroy. 
That's kind of, kind of the system that is working. They're not human. They're not like us. They don't have much. Once you've done that, you disenfranchise them, which leads into other stereotypes. Well, if they were any good, those Egyptians wouldn't have even, or those Israelites wouldn't have even been slaves. Then you can go to this next level. He goes to the Hebrew uh, women, says, you got to kill them. The Hebrew women love God. They say, no, thank you. We're not going to do that. Uh, the king comes to him and says, I noticed that nobody's been dying. What's up? Uh, they tell an amazing story about how quickly uh, the Israelite women give birth. They're like, hey, we tried, but they just give birth so fast, man. It's, we get in there, the babies are all right. And he's like, what's going on? He's going to skip ahead down to the verse 22 then. Pharaoh then commanded all of his people, you must throw every son born to the Hebrews into the Nile, but every let every daughter live. My point simply is this, you don't start at destruction. After Joseph has helped Egypt survive, after, after Joseph's family grows up there and people get to know them, after they know them as neighbors and probably have relationships with them, he can't start with, hey, go next door and shoot your neighbor. Doesn't work like that. He has to start someplace else. So he starts with humaniz dehumanization, leads into disenfranchisement, which leads to destruction. It's the same way. It's what happened in World War I, right? We start by talking bad about Jewish people. We then go and find scientific reasons why the worst. We scapegoat them from everything. We put them together. We oppress them. We oppress them long enough. And as things go worse and worse in our own country, everybody will blame them. And once everybody blames them, we will start to destroy them. It's how we get the Holocaust. It used the same method. It happened in, in America, right? We did do this for years and years and years and years of disenfranchisement. We do years and years of dehumanization so that now when we have an incident where, where, uh, where, um, where an African-American male is killed in a conflict with the authorities, the, question, the first statement is not, that is sorrowful that someone had to die. The first response is, what did he do? And frankly, sometimes when they can't prove that he did anything, they go back into his background. It's a, if you want to study something interesting, study the differences between how, how, uh, how black crime and white crime is covered by, by newspapers. I'll give you for an instance. There was the young man uh, who was, a, was at Stanford. He was a member of the swim team. He was effective. He was also a rapist. He was let go by the judge because the, his dad argued in court that he shouldn't have to pay the rest of his life for 20 minutes of fun, right? After he raped a young lady, he was essentially let go on probation. But if you looked at how the media covered it and you opened it up, every picture of him in every headline would say something like, like Stanford swimmer accused of. And then it would have a picture of his Stanford stuff. Now, study how, how a, a black man, any crime, whether he committed or not. So uh, the most obvious to me is Philando Castle. Philando Castle committed no crime. In fact, he, he worked with the, uh, the schools in, in Minneapolis. He's a mentor to kids, loved by everyone. Uh, he, was, he was shot in, in, in his car. The question uh, by authorities, after he's shot in the car by his authorities, you have to deal with what, what happened. Uh, and I'm not even speaking to, to, to the legality of the justice or what happened. Not my point. Simple point is, is that immediately after that, what happens in American media is when a black man, something bad happens to them, they go into their life. And so they oftentimes find pictures of these, these men who are in their 20s and 30s and they go back as far as they can, even into their early, uh, their, into their teens. And so they find a picture of him when he was 18. They take that picture of him in jail and, and the headline will be something like, like 
pot smoker and rebel shot by, I'm exact, but that's kind of how the headlines come, come through. The reason that happens is because dehumanization and disenfranchisement ha, has been sort of the, the move of our, of our country for years, and that's not our point this morning, but it's, I want you to understand it as instructive to our, our point. So, uh, going, uh, so then, what is destruction? Well, people are being shot on the streets because we have essentially created, through the way we, we, uh, we dehumanize in media, the way we portray the African-American male as, as dangerous, as scary, as criminal, it's causing disenfranchisement, which is leading to destruction, right? People are afraid, and so they react when people have guns or when stuff happens. People react, and it's begetting violence. And that's just one of the, another example would be, if you look specifically at the issue of DACA that's going on in our country now, uh, that's deferred actions for, for immigrants. These are young people who were brought into America before they could make any, any decision. They have lived here basically all of their life. They have applied and received from the government permission to stay here as long as they worked on certain things. They have to be in college. They have to be employed. They cannot have committed crime. They are vetted, so to speak, right? And so right now we're having this giant fight over DACA in our country, but it is interesting that the fight over DACA started from one political side with dehumanization. I am sure that some of them are good people, but we don't need people from these countries where they, have, where they are all murderers, rapists, and thugs. They use this sort of, sort of language continually, and they refer to, it's an interesting thing where I constantly hear in the, in the immigration debate, I hear young uh, Hispanic children who were brought here brought here as children, and, and I know several who were brought here, uh, I have a good friend, six months. We're talking six months. It is offensive to hear him referred to uh, publicly by people pushing a political view as a lawbreaker. He is a lawbreaker. The, the reason we're using the term lawbreaker is so it can dictate and control how we might treat that lawbreaker, correct? Even though, interestingly, if you read through scripture, I see Jesus saying a lot about how we treat even the lawbreaker, right? Visit those in prison. But that's, that's just a side note. We use the term lawbreaker so that we don't have to do it. And so we're referring to, to children who were brought here, lived here all their life, had no control, never willingly or knowingly broke as lawbreakers. We use this term so that we can dehumanize, right? So that we can disenfranchise. You need to get out. And so that when something happens, when something happens, we do not have to deal with the humanity. And so here's where destruction comes in in the DACA debate. I don't know if you saw this earlier this week, but a 39-year-old man who's been living in Detroit, brought here when he was young, DACA uh, uh, had documents, was, was deported from, from the country this, this week. He was deported from his family. They have lived here all of their life. His family is all citizens. They broke up his family. He was, he was a, not only was he, a, was he a citizen, but he was an upstanding citizen. He was a good father, good parent, good husband. To tear apart families is by any definition destruction. We have to, as believers, I think, come out against destruction of families. I do not care where you come down politically on almost anything. I do care about where your compassion is on everything. Right, And so sometimes what I see when people talk about this, so Libby, uh, uh, Libby posted that, just, just the article, and then some people jumped in, well, what about this? They broke the law. They, they broke the law is the response of dehumanization and disenfranchisement. It is not the response of a person who's dealing with the human. Right? So if you disenfranchise, you can, you can do things. Another example, uh, a week ago, I think a week ago, ICE, which is the uh, 
the immigration police, so to speak, uh, showed up at the house of one of the students in, in, uh, in one of our school districts that we deal with closely with the student that we know. They showed up and they, they took, arrested for deportation, the father from the home. He was a single father. He had a 13-year-old daughter. 13-year-old daughter was not home at the time. They did not check. They did not worry about it. They took the father. Now, in normal police work where you're talking, Libby has a good friend who's a police officer. She said, could you guys do this? She's like, no, there's no way. They would have to make sure that children's services, they would check, see who was home. But ICE, not under those same rules, shows up, pulls the man out of the home. The 13-year-old daughter, who's the, who's, that's her sole care, was left alone and scared out of her mind. Your response to that and my response to that should be, well, no matter what political side I'm on in this argument, that's evil. But dehumanization, led by disenfranchisement, allows destruction. We look at families and go, well, we've got laws here in America, and they're law breakers. I always think it's dangerous for people who are following Jesus by grace to get too upset about lawbreakers. But that's, that's just, again, a, a free statement. So dis- dehumanization, disenfranchisement, destruction. And I'm, honestly, my point this morning is not, is not even political and about America, but I want you to feel these in real time so you understand what's happening in this this passage so we can get to a point. So I'd be remiss one more time if I didn't say this. Uh, The the March for Life was all over, uh, going on all over this weekend where people stood up and they marched against, um, they marched against an epidemic where we're doing uh, a million abortions in this, this country per year. I don't want you to think it's a mistake that what started with, with, with Thomas Jefferson writing all men are created equal while holding slaves. I don't want you to think that it's a mistake that that gave way to when slavery was finally abolished, that that gave way to Jim Crow. And I don't want you to think that Jim Crow gave way to educational disenfranchisement, which it did. We talked about it before. It didn't work. I don't want you to think that any of those things, that the dehumanization of those things did not lead to Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, who said we need to get rid of all these poor and colored children. They are a plague on our society. So I point this out to point out this reality, that the overwhelming majority of abortion clinics are in black and brown neighborhoods. And the reason people aren't all up in arms, the people aren't, it's the same reason that when the water went bad in Rockford, it got way more coverage than when the water went bad in Plant. Because we have dehumanized the black and the brown. I don't want you to lo- this to be lost on you. That Margaret Sanger's original goal, the extinguishment of the person of color, is being carried out in our country largely by abortion clinics that are overwhelmingly in black and brown neighborhoods that are overwhelmingly aborting black and brown children. So that in New York City, I believe I read, read, there were more black children aborted than there were born last year. What we dehumanize, we disenfranchise, and what we disenfranchise, we are allowed to destroy. And this ought not be, but... I told you all of that simply to say you can see how the political situation plays out here, right? This is the political situation. Here's what I want you to notice, though. In the midst of the political situation, usually, usually when I tell you when you read Scripture and you read about a victim, I say don't view yourself as the victim, right? <laughs> you're, you're not the good guy in, in most passages. Here I want you to realize that 
that for American Christians, increasingly, I expect, largely because of some of our own foolishness, but for other things, we, we are progressing towards a time probably when, when oppression will come to us. But we should not mourn, lament, or otherwise weep about that without acknowledging that oppression has been to our, to our brothers in the faith all over the world for decade upon decade, if not century upon, upon century. And so here's what I want you to catch. So God's people are singled out because they're a minority. First they're dehumanized, then they're disenfranchised, and then there's an out-and-out attempt at destruction. Verse 14, uh, they ruthlessly imposed all this work on them. Verse 15, the king said to the Hebrew midwives, the first whose name was Shiprah and the second whose name was Pua, when he helped the women give birth, observe them as a liver. If the child is a son, kill him. He tries to do that, and what happens is what? It says at a couple places in the passage, they keep multiplying. They keep multiplying, right? So every time they try and bring this oppression against them, they keep multiplying them. Now, I do feel like the, the king... The king, you know, he tried, he tried to kill them right after birth. He tried to infanticide, uh, but he, he, there's unintended consequences of his actions, right? And one of those unintended consequences, and I'll say this gently, but if you take a group of people and you oppress that group of people in the society, what that's going to drive them into is their home, right? And so, uh, I'll say it like this. We know this in Michigan, that if we have a giant January snowstorm, Giant, giant people are trapped inside. They can't get out. They can't get bread. They can't, there's nothing for them inside the house. What we know in Michigan is nine months later, we're going to have a baby boom, right? It happens. And the Pharaoh didn't understand that because God, and let's be honest, this God being good made human sexuality for the good of his people. He has his people who are in, in relationship to each other. Things go terrible outside the home. What does it drive them to? It drives them to each other inside the home. And so the more he oppresses them, the more they're looking for something that doesn't feel like oppression in their home, right? And I'm trying to be, trying to be gentle with this, but this is another, it's, sermon's full of freebies, I guess. But here's the point, right? God created human sexuality for the flourishing of his people and for the flourishing of his children. And so his children, who in right relationship, the society oppresses them, they are going to rightly then use the gifts of God all the more. Why go outside, baby? It might just be you and I. But you and I tonight is enough because God made it that way. And so he keeps oppressing them. Every time he oppresses them, they have more, they have more children. Oppress, oppress, oppress. More children, more children, more children, more children. So he's right. He's like, well, they keep having children. Let's try killing the children. That doesn't work out either, right? And so I, I, I point that out to you, that in the midst of it, oppress, 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 they can't kill it. I, I've used this, this phrase with you before, but we, we know this is that this is a physical example of a spiritual reality as well. That the church of Jesus Christ, typically, there's been a few cases where this hasn't been true, but the church of Jesus Christ, where the church of Jesus Christ is persecuted, it stops depending on what happens outside the home, it leans in to Jesus, and the church explodes all over. It happened in China, it happens in Indonesia, it happens all over the world. If you oppress us, we are going to multiply. It drives us back into the home. 
uh, it's, I always quote the rapper KB who said, what are you going to murder us? All murder does is send a surge of us to go and put churches up. I'll say it again. KB said, what are you going to do? You're going to murder us? All murder does is send a surge of us to go and put churches up. That's what happens. And so that's what happens in the past. It drives them into the home. They multiply. It drives them to, to God. So the king goes, okay, kill them. The, the followers of, 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 of Yahweh in the passage go, yeah, that's a hard no for us, king. We're not going to do that. Uh, so you get the name of two people that are really heroes in this story that you never really heard. I don't know if it's because it's hard to, to pronounce. Shipra. There's an extra H there. I don't know. Someone told me recently, pronounce things with confidence. No one will catch. No one will question you. I think that's true of Old Testament words. But you've got Shipra and Pua. They're heroes. What do they do? They refuse to murder the children of, of Israel. They, 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 they obfuscate. They confuse him. He's like, okay, that won't work. He tells everybody, kill the children of Israel, and it doesn't work. What happens? They multiply. So we understand then that often... We think in our culture that the way to the blessing of God, the way to God's multiplication, the way to be fruitful and multiply is through the, through the easier road or through the blessed road. We talk about this all the time. We could turn on TV and they would tell us on TV, if you turned it to a religious station, God does not intend for you to have pain. God does not intend to suffer. Sow your seed and he's going to bless you like crazy and we'll all be super happy and super, super rich. And they sell that, but in the scripture, that's not what I've seen. I'm that the path to multiplication goes through the path of suffering, that the path uh, uh, to multiplication goes through, through the path of struggle. And so this idea, I believe that you are called to be blessed. I am called, believe that you are called to be a blessed multiplier. I do not believe that scripture tells us anywhere that you are not called to suffer. In fact, I'm increasingly convinced, given our culture, given what's going on, given all kinds of things, that suffering is going to be the, the posture and the responsibility of every Christ follower over the next few generations. That is depressing on the first, on the personal, but do not be down. The result of that, if we live, uh, live like this, if, if God chooses to move in the way that he moves here, the result of our suffering, the result of our oppression, the result of our disenfranchisement, the result of all that will be multiplication, not for us, but for him. I have seen this. We can study the churches throughout history where persecution breaks out in the church and the church leans into God. It results in multiplication. The path to multiplication and blessing often goes through the path of struggle. That's one point I want you to get. The path to multiplication goes through the path of, of struggle. Secondly, I want you to note that the path of multiplication is for the glory of God, which is for your good, but it is not necessarily for how you would design, define in any culture good. But that, that, uh, that, that said, the, the path to multiplication goes through the path of struggle. Secondly, if you've ever felt like, who am I? Who exactly am I? What am I? And how could God ever use me for anything significant? I would point you to two ladies I, that I know that I have heard of multiple times in my life, but whose names I can never remember, right? I know them because I've read them five times this morning, but I feel like I memorized them this morning and I studied this all week. I remember Pua. I only remember Shipra because it sounds like Shiplap and my wife watches that home show where the girl uses Shiplap. So uh, apparently none of you are into Chip and Joanna. So we'll move on. Nobody got that. Uh, so I remember Shipper on Pua, but the only reason I know Shipper on Pua, I've read it a million times. And I'll be honest with you, a year from now, I'm going to be, what were those ladies' names? Who were they? Because 
they don't have a huge role. They just have this role. But the role is significant. God uses it to carry out his plan. If they're disobedient and they start to put to death the, ch- the Hebrew children, what happens? There's no continuation of the line. We've already talked about it. There's no continuation line. There's no line of David. There's no line of David. There's no rightful one to come sit on David's throne. There's no Jesus. But they don't. They go, we're going to do what's right. The cool thing about this is they're not famous. No one's ever really heard of them. Like, if we were honest, I asked you if you knew it, maybe two of you would remember Shipra and Pua, and, and one of you would need to repent of saying that you knew Shipra and Pua after the service. It just wouldn't be honest, right? We haven't heard of them. Here's what I want you to know. The path to blessing and multiplication often goes through struggle. Secondly, no matter who you are, no matter how small you are, God can use you in his plan if he so chooses, which is a beautiful thing. God doesn't need you. God is not obligated to you, but God can use you no matter who you are. And so it's two ladies you've never heard of. What was their job? Their job was to help deliver babies. What did they do? They preserved the line of the Messiah. It's significant. It's huge what these women did. And so if you've ever felt like you're nothing, I want you to know that you have a giant role in the plan of God. And I don't know what it is, and it's probably not ever going to be written down. But you... You can be Shipra and Pua. They just did what was right. They didn't preach. Uh, they didn't have a crusade. There's not a point in here where they lead anybody to Jesus. There's none of Like, we don't have any of these things. What did they do? They just obeyed. They refused to do wrong. And then here's, here's the last point that I want to catch, us to catch. There is a tendency in our thought process to depend upon government for the bringing out of right and wrong in our country. And I want to caution you based upon this passage, based upon our recounting of of history, based upon what's going on in our current government, to be very wary of trusting anybody from either party to accomplish anything that significantly uh, advances the plan of God. I'll take that back. Everything advances the plan of God. God does what he wants with them. But we tend to have thought, and we come out of a time that I would call Constantinianism, We've come out of a time where we thought Christianity has power, and if we could just get enough power and enough politics, we could change enough laws, and if we could just change enough laws, then everything would be okay. I want to caution you to not trust governments for your salvation. I, I want to caution you to not trust governments for the salvation of our culture. I want you to, tr- to caution you not to lean into that. On, on the basis of scriptures, reading this last night, I was just thinking about stuff going on in, in society. And um, some of us th- who are theology doors, we use the term Constantinianism a lot. Constantinianism, just this idea, man, if we just vote for the right people and do the right things, then Christians will come to power in the middle of society again, and then we'll be able to decide whatever, what movies people watch, what they shouldn't watch TV, decency standards, all, you know, every law, those are, those are light ones, but there would be good laws we could enact, and so it becomes a version of theonomy, this idea of God is, is, becomes the, the, the de facto president of our country, and so uh, I come from, from a generation that essentially believed that that voting for one party would make that so. And some of you come from a different family where they, they believe voting for the opposite party would make that, that so. We don't even realize that, that, that there's whole churches out there like preaching about Jesus, saying the, the whole opposite. I want to caution both sides and say this. The history of our country is one where whoever's in power seeks to dehumanize, disenfranchise, and destroy anybody who's not in power. 
We've seen that throughout. That happened with slavery. I think we're seeing it currently with immigration. I believe you'll soon see it with Christianity. I do believe that, that what is going to happen is disenfranchisement and attempts at destruction of Christianity. And I want to encourage you, though, to not be distraught. See, the government was against God's plan here, and God carried it out, didn't he? And what I want to caution you is if you are tempted to think that Jesus Christ can't carry out his plan without help from Constantine, you've missed the point. Jesus doesn't need Constantine's help. We said it to you before, and we've been saying it for weeks. God does what he wants. It's always consistent with his promises, and it's always consistent with his character. And so I want to encourage all of us for this. This is called Exodus. From the term Exodus, we get exile, right? In 1 Peter, it refers to Christians, the Christ followers, as elect exiles. And I want you to realize that I think probably in America, that's where we're progressing towards. And our dependence is not going to come through who we, who we vote for, who we elect, who we petition. I'm not telling you not to do those things. Follow your conscience and be involved. That's not my point. But I'm telling you, you can't depend on it. Here, the government tried to wipe them out, and God went, no, I've got a plan. And even in the midst of your foolishness, I will carry it out. So that's what I want to encourage you with this morning, that multiplication often comes through struggle. No matter who you are, no matter how insignificant you seem, God can use you to carry out his plan. And last of all, let us count on Jesus Christ to carry out his plan. Not anybody from any party or whatever party's next to come from any election or anything, but God himself will do what he has said. Pray with me.